as we hear God's word together and receive it into our hearts. Jesus be with you. Some of you may remember receiving a meaningful moment from a majestic place where someone from their travels would take the time to do a handwritten note to you and on the back would be a picture of where they are and then they would spend 25 cents to send that to you. Remember, what were those called? Um, no, not emails. Thank you very much. For, but postcards. <laughs> I had a friend, Randy. He was a corn husker. We won't talk about that. But he used to send me postcards. I have a collection of them. They went something like this. <clears throat> Visit Nebraska, like Colorado, but flatter. <laughs> or this one, cow tipping. It's utter chaos. Yeah. Or my favorite, Ski Nebraska. (laughs) (laughs) The Gospel of Mark is a collection of postcards from the kingdom of God. The first words that we hear Jesus speak in Mark are these. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Today we want to ask three questions. What is the kingdom of God? Then we want to ask, what is this king like who's bringing the kingdom of God? And then we want to ask, how do we enter the kingdom of God? These were the first words out of Jesus' mouth, and he spoke about the kingdom of God frequently throughout the Gospels. In fact, We would say that they are the central mission and theme of his teaching, the kingdom of God. But it's a difficult concept to understand, not only because we live in a democracy and ideas of king and kingdom are rather foreign to us, but even more, even when Jesus talked about the kingdom, he usually spoke indirectly. He didn't just give us three bullet points with PowerPoint and say, this is the kingdom of God. No, usually use metaphor and story and irony. He said, for instance, that the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast where everyone's invited, but the door will close on some. He said that the kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field, and when you find that treasure, you better sell everything you have to buy that field. He said the kingdom of God is like a net cast wide and there'll be good fish and bad fish and separated in the end and he said that the kingdom of God is like a landowner who hires workers to work his fields throughout the day but at the end of the day he pays them all the same wage he said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed the tiniest uh, barely visible seed but from that seed grows a huge tree that even the birds can live in he said the kingdom of God is like yeast always expanding, working through the loaf, even when you don't see it, even overnight expanding. He said the kingdom of God is hard for the rich to get in because they already have heaven. Now, he said the kingdom of God is easy for children to get in because they have imagination now. It's in the kingdom of God, if you seek it first, he said that there'll be throw-ins. Simple throw-ins like food, clothing, shelter. He said that the kingdom of God is a great reversal where prostitutes 
and tax collectors enter before Pharisees and pastors. What is the kingdom of God? Well, the word itself means a sphere of control. We know kingdoms. I think we really do, even though we live here in America. A kingdom is a place that's set up according to your preferences, your purposes, your values. It's, it's an environment arranged how you like it. it. It's a domain of influence where what you say goes. It's authority applied. It's sovereignty suited. We all have places like that. At your work, perhaps, you're a boss. Or maybe you get to walk your dog. Or maybe you get to run the remote on Tuesday nights. But it's your choice. What you say goes. I have a kingdom. I do. My kingdom is a 2012 red Toyota Corolla. I have the seat adjusted for these short legs. I have the back adjusted for this torso to see in my mirrors perfectly. The treble is right. The bass is right. The Bluetooth works. It is good in the kingdom. And then I have these imposters who get in and leave trash on my floor, mess up the treble and bass, and I still can't get my Bluetooth to work. Their names are Ethan and Luke when they borrow my car, my sons. God's kingdom. What's the range of effective will of, of God's kingdom? Well, Scripture tells us that His kingdom is vast. In Psalm 47, we read, The Lord Most High is awesome. He is the great King over all the earth. Or Daniel saw this in a vision. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. God's kingdom is vast. What he says goes, and it's everywhere. In fact, here are the results. He tells us in Isaiah, the prophet sees the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Maybe it is Nebraska. I don't know. Um, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Picture this. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Wow. Jesus is born. He launches into ministry, and his first message, the kingdom of God, this kingdom is near. It's here with me, in my person, God's sphere of control has now covered the earth but if you're thinking like i've been wrestling all week with yeah the kingdom of god is near it came with jesus but the world is a mess there's a tension here right i mean turn on the news this last week school shooting 
bombing in a subway. Is that what the kingdom of God smells like? Explosives? Or, or walk into the darkest parts of Africa and there's a clinic there, a tent, and in the back corner there's a little child dying, malnourished, starving to death. Is that what the kingdom of God looks like? Or walk into a nursing home and there people are dying before they die, robbed by Alzheimer's. Or walk into another clinic and there little children are dying before they live. Is that what the kingdom of God feels like, the darkness of death? Or you overhear a conversation, and it's a teenager telling her parents, I hate you, and I'm not coming home. Is that what the kingdom of God sounds like? Theologians, they have a phrase for this, tension. And by the way, this, this tension, I think even the most faithful among us feel this tension at times. I mean, John the Baptist, we talked about last week, baptized Jesus. The heavens were ripped open. The Spirit came down like a dove and the voice of the Father, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. John witnessed that, but just months later from prison, after he begins to understand that the armies that Jesus was supposed to rally are not taking back the streets of Jerusalem or turning towards Rome, even John the Baptist asks, are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? This tension. The theologians, they, they have a word, a phrase for it. Ah, if you're looking for your next tattoo, this is going to be my suggestion for you. Now, as I like to say, some cathedrals don't need any stained glass, but if you're one of those persons that do, <laughs> here's my suggestion for your next tattoo. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. Already, not yet. The kingdom is already. Jesus' birth, he inaugurated it. Jesus on the cross extended it, and all the powers are disarmed. And his resurrection ratified the kingdom of God. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. Already. But not yet. Not yet. You see, there's still competing kingdoms present. There's the demonic realm, Satan and his demons. The Bible calls Satan the prince and power of the air, the God of this age, a roaring lion roaming to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. There is a competing kingdom of unseen realm. And there's a competing kingdom in the seen realm. Actually, about seven billion of them, they're called yours and mine, that are often contrary to the will of God. There are still competing kingdoms present, and thus things in this world our mess. But one day, the not yet, one day Jesus will come. As Revelation told us last year, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the earth will mourn because of him. And when he comes, the restoration will be complete and full leading to a new heavens and a new earth. That's the not yet. We live in this space between the already here and the not yet coming of Jesus Christ. And in this space, what do we do? Well, Jesus shows us that text in, the, in Mark where he gets up early in the morning and prays. That's one of the most important things we do in the space between the already 
and the not yet. What did Jesus pray? I suspect he prayed something like he taught us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. John Ortberg has captured this in a memorable phrase that I often hear around the halls of Waterstone, and it's a great phrase. May up there come down here. That's what we do in the space between the already and the not yet. That's what we do to bring the kingdom in. We go to the places in Africa where suffering is intense, and we pray, may up there come down here. And then we do what God tells us to do. We, we go to those places of school shootings and subway bombings. We go and we pray, may up there come down here. And we go to those places, those homes, even our own, where we hear those phone conversations and we say, may up there come down here. We pray that prayer and then do what God tells us to do in those situations and believe that the kingdom is coming. It is the golden thread through every part of history. History is not a downward spiral going nowhere. History is a straight line to that coming of Christ, but God's kingdom is already on the move and leading us there. And it's by targeting in and bringing up there, down here, and all the places around the world, we begin to see that golden thread, the kingdom of God working through everything, even the worst things. I want to tell a story here again at Waterstone. It's a story that we tell every so often. It must never be forgotten. In the school year 1998-99, Jerry Nelson over at Southern Gables started a pastor's prayer group. At first, there were about five or six of us that would show up. But over that fall and through the holidays around January, February, that group grew to over 50 pastors representing 30 churches in the Littleton area. And some of the prayer times, we initially prayed for an hour, they would go for two or three hours. Never before or since have I been part of a prayer movement by that. April 20th, 1999, the Columbine shootings occurred, the worst day ever in this community. Within hours, 30 churches were networked, pastors were on the move. You may remember that just days later, we had a huge prayer service on the steps of the Bulls Crossing Theater. Amy Grant and Michael um, W. Smith came in, and Franklin Graham came out, and he preached this message, the largest broadcast at that time ever on CNN, and he spoke that in these horrible, terrible times, these times of evil, the hope that we have is that Jesus is risen from the dead, and he is king. The months after, the churches were networked with county resources, law enforcement, all these things, people working together for massive care. And then we brought in Ravi Zacharias to meet with thousands of high school students to help them process in, in their worldview how these kinds of things could happen. Now, I don't know how you fit this into your theology. I'm not even sure how I fit it into mine. I know two things to be true. One, God did not pull the trigger at Columbine High School Two angry, disillusioned, demon-possessed boys pulled the trigger. But I also know that April 20th, 1999 did not surprise God. And that the kingdom of God was already on the move. It's the golden thread through even the worst days of our lives.
The kingdom of God, Jesus says, has come. But what's the kingdom like? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to answer what the king's like. And can we put our confidence in this kind of king? And so we go on, and we, we read the rest of the chapter, and we begin to see postcards from the kingdom start to come in. Jesus, he makes his home base in Capernaum, which is up north part of Israel in the Sea of Galilee, fishing the main industry. It seems he was bunking in with James and John in their homes and families, or with Peter and Andrew, their homes and families. But he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he began to teach. As soon as he began to read, a demon manifests itself. Here's what we need to know about that first miracle. Never before in the Bible is it ever mentioned that uh, one person casts a demon out of another. This is a first. Then we go on from there, and we see Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, and then we see him at the end of the chapter healing a leper, and here's another first. Never before do we see anyone healing by actually touching a diseased person. That broke every cultural taboo and every Jewish religion taboo, but Jesus touches the person and heals them. And I find it rather interesting in the text as well there in that healing that it says his motive for healing was not necessarily compassion, though I'm sure that was part of it. it do you remember it said he was indignant? He was hacked off at what the brokenness of this world in between the already and not yet has done to people and their lives. He's mad. In fact, if you read Mark, a good portion, almost a third of the miracles are mad miracles. He is upset by this world and moves to fix it. So in the weeks to come, we're going to be talking more about exorcisms and demons. Stay tuned. We're also going to take deeper dives into healing and what it meant then and what it means now. But today I want to give a broad kind of background. By the way, there's some very interesting reading about demons and healing in your small group books. And I think we ran out of our small group books, but they're on our website if, if you're not yet in a small group. By the way, it's not too late to get into a small group. Yeah, today, stop at the info booth if you'd like to get in and experience Mark in a small group. But you can download our small group curriculum off our website. Some very interesting reading, especially on the uh, demon uh, issue. But um, today, just a broad background of miracles. C.S. Lewis said that miracles are the heart of Christianity. If you think about it, the Old Testament sits on one huge miracle, the crossing of the Red Sea. And you think of the New Testament, it sits on one huge miracle, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the crossing of death into life. You cannot be a fully formed follower of Jesus and not believe in the miraculous. Everything sits on those things. Why? Well, the miracles are a way of demonstrating who is God and who God is. They are part of the every day, every moment, if we can say this of God, he lives outside of time. Time does not at all uh, hinder or factor into God's being. But every moment of God's existence, if you'll let me say that, because I don't know how else to say it, is, is captured by this idea of life, an explosive dynamite life, where all these things are always happening in God's presence. God is life. So Charles Williams, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, he put it this way, the miracles of Jesus are really, listen, the ordinary workings of his Father, wrought small and swift that we might take them in. So when Jesus performs a miracle showing the power of the king, what's he like? Strong. And the heart of the king, what's he like? Loving, compassionate, upset about our suffering. 
That's what this king is like. And the miracles are like signal flares going up and saying, this is him, this is the king. That is the purpose of miracles. But Jesus was right. He said that when people see miracles, there would be these responses. If you already believe and follow him, the miracles would anchor your faith. If you deny him and don't believe in him, the miracles, they mean nothing to you. They're really not helpful. I guess some things need to be believed in order to be seen. Some of you are thinking, Larry, I hear what you're saying. Jesus came. We're not yet there. We're in this. But I wish I could get a signal flare to show Jesus' power and love in my life. Where's my miracle? Where's my miracle? The best answer I could give you, it's coming. It's coming. I can tell you when. You will have your miracle and your body fully healed the moment Jesus returns. Now, it's true when you die, you'll go into his presence, your soul will be in his presence, but you will, your body will not be fully healed until Jesus comes and all the bodies are lifted up, fully healed. Your miracle is coming. You say, Larry, I wish you would get here sooner than that. I know. I know. The leper, when he approached Jesus, he said, and these are the words, this is how we pray for miracles. If you are willing. You see, whether or not we get healed of something in our bodies does not depend on our faith or our lack of faith. It depends on the object of our faith. If he is willing. And sometimes in this existence between the already and the not yet, he is willing in this time to do miraculous healings, even exorcisms, even natural miracles. He is still willing, and there's sign signal flares of who's here. But all too often, those do not come to us. And here's the other reality even if you get healed in this life, you're still dying. You're not fully healed. You will not be fully healed until Jesus returns. So, look up! <laughs> My uh, youngest son, Luke, I remember teaching him to ride a bike. He was four or five out in our front of our street, nice wide street. Luke caught on quick. And almost his first ride, he was soloing, he took off down the street, pedaling, pedaling, does an oval. I was impressed he could, in the turn, comes around, pedaling. But I noticed coming back, he's pedaling fast, but he's looking down, I don't know, captured by the chain maybe. He's just looking down and pedaling fast. Across the street from us at the time were our great neighbors, Joel and Jenna. And Joel was a man's man with one of those big pickup trucks with three foot high tires. <laughs> and he, uh, Luke, let's hear, bam! I run over pick up Luke, gather him in my arms. Luke says, Daddy, I did look up, but the truck was still there. <laughs> the already, but not yet, the trucks are still there. Look up! Dallas Willard, Divine Conspiracy. I meet many faithful Christians who in spite of their faith, are deeply disappointed in how their lives have turned out. 
Sometimes it is simply a matter of how they experience aging, which they take to mean they no longer have a future. But often due to circumstances or wrongful decisions and actions by others, what they had hoped to accomplish in life, they did not. They painfully puzzle over what they may have done wrong or whether God has really been with them. Much of the distress of these good people comes from a failure to realize that their life lies before them, that they are coming to the end of their present life. Life in the flesh is of little significance. What is of significance is the kind of person they have become. Circumstances and other people are not in control of an individual's character or of the life that lies endlessly before us in the kingdom of God. Jesus comes, he proclaims the kingdom is near. It's already, but not yet. But in this time when trucks are still in the way, we have a king who demonstrates his power and demonstrates his love and can walk with us through this time. How do we enter this kind of kingdom? Jesus tells us back to verse 15. He says, repent and believe. Entrance is repenting and believing. Repenting means to do a 180, to change your mind, to stop what you're doing and wholeheartedly embrace what God is doing as the reason for your existence. Believe is to understand who Jesus is and what he's doing. And then to, secondly, agree with it and say yes. But ultimately, what faith means is entering, action, committing. We could illustrate it this way. Let's say... Uh, you're a person who has a fear of flying, but there's a wedding in San Diego you need to get to. So you are going to believe in flying. So you start your work to understand flying. You study the laws of aerodynamics, how lift can hold a kajillion pound plane in hanging in midair. And you understand aerodynamics. And then you decide, well, I better see if, if it's true that s traveling by air is a safe way. And so you do the research on statistics and find out that indeed air travel is one of the safest forms of transportation. So, but you're, you're still not convinced, so you talk to your friends and get first-person accounts. And then you join a fear of flying group for the encouragement that you need. So you understand it, and you believe that it's safe. And so you order your ticket, and you drive to the airport, and you go through security, and you walk down the concourse, and you walk down the jetway, and then you see the gap between the jetway and the plane, and you look out, and over there's the pilot, and he's really looking at the plane as if he's never seen one before. And then there, there's this mechanic that's dickering with something on the plane, and you understand flight, and you're convinced of the safety of air traffic, but when do you actually believe in flying? When you get on the plane, when you enter, when you move into a new realm what does that look like we saw it in verses 16 and 20 Aaron's going to put it up I won't read it but there it is this is entrance this is all of those working together believing in Jesus Christ now I want you to understand that James and John Peter and Andrew they weren't losers they weren't paupers. They were fishermen in a place where fishing was the leading industry. They were respected. They played bocce ball on Thursday nights, and they went to synagogue on the Sabbath, and they were part of the fishermen union. These were 
normal, everyday guys with families, friends. They lived pretty good lives. And yet Jesus comes up on them and says, I see your pretty good life, but I want to be the priority over your nets, your career. I want to be the priority over your families, your father, all those expectations. I want you to bring me into each of them. Let's personalize this, shall we? You're at work. Jesus comes up to you. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. You think, wow, what? repent. What do you mean? Well, maybe for some of us, it's a besetting sin that is indeed wrecking our lives, ruining our relationships, interrupting our vertical relationship to the Father. We need to turn from that sin and stop doing it and, 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 and fill our hearts with Jesus. But for most of us, do you know what Jesus is asking us to repent of? Our pretty good life. Not because our pretty good life is so wrong, but because our pretty good life is so small. Jesus wants to be the priority relationship of your life. That means he wants into your wallet how you use your money. It's the chief indicator where your heart is. He wants into your family how you lead your families. He wants into your friendships. He wants into your work. He wants into your sex. He wants into every part of your life. He wants in. And then he wants you to say, may up there come down here in every part of your life. And that makes a life filled with fury for the kingdom of God. A huge life. He asked them to do it. In fact, later in Luke, if I could press us in a little bit more with this, we read, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be done. My disciple. The first thing I would do, underline that word anyone. It does not say missionary. It does not say super spiritual Christians. This is entry point. Anyone does not hate, okay, Larry, what in the world does Jesus mean by hate? Well, he doesn't mean active hate. I mean, he doesn't even let us hate our enemies. And he tells us to honor our parents. He's not talking about an active hate. He's talking about a comparative hate. That when Jesus and everyone else looks at our lives, they see the way that we have welcomed him into every part of our lives and make him the priority relationship Every other relationship by comparison seems like hate because we are so filled with fury for the king. He wants to be the priority relationship. So often we come and we hear the call of Jesus, follow me in any given area, but we say, well, I'll follow you when my career blossoms or I'll follow you if my health is good. I'll follow you if my family is together. And Jesus is saying, no, whatever's on the other side of your whens and ifs, that's your God. Follow me. Every part of your life. And then 
your life is huge. You know, when James and John, Peter and Andrew, they heard Jesus ask that, what they would soon learn over the next three or four years is that the one who was asking them to follow had already left his father's house. And he would soon be separated from his father by our sin. And he would die for us, walk through death and on into life, and then turn around and say to us, if you follow me, then even the worst day of your life, the worst, the worst when you die, you'll follow me through death into the arms of the Father. We finish this message on the kingdom today with a prayer. It's a kind of a liturgy that we're borrowing from the Quakers. The Quakers had a way of praying, and they would begin praying with their arms extended, with their palms down. And this symbolized them letting go of everything in their life that was interrupting, distracting, rebelling, against their relationship with Jesus, and they would let it go. And then they would turn their palms upward, and they would ask, what do I need to seek first God's kingdom? First, Lord, give me what I need to do that. Resources, wisdom, guidance, courage. What do I need? Can we pray like Quakers this morning? If you're comfortable, would you extend your hands, eyes closed, however posture you want to take. But extend your hands if you're comfortable doing that. Palms down. And in the quiet of this moment, tell Jesus what you want and need to let go of in order to give him your life. Tell him what you're letting go. And please, palms open and upward. Tell Jesus what you need to seek first the kingdom of God. What do you need from him today? stand together, pray before we sing, as our Lord taught us, aloud together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.